It's time for building the game. Building the game with Jason and friends. Tabletop game design. The the end of the episode that's when it technically ends hello and welcome to building the game a documentary podcast today is monday october 12th and you're listening to episode 437 as always i'm your host jason today uh, joined by a game designer who i've known uh, for a few years now um we have tangentially been involved with many of the same companies as it turns out uh i have mr jonathan chaffer here hey jonathan hello so yeah, we we uh you have games uh you have Stroop and Filler out currently. You've some others signed, uh, but you have Stroop and Filler out officially, and um those are with the same two publishers that I have two of my games out. <laughs> which yeah, is, I think our first uh, designs there were within months of one another of coming out. Right, I know. Yeah, I I think on real estate came out before Stroop, but Filler came out before Into the Black Forest. Right. Yep, because <laughs> I remember back to back in both cases. Yeah, it was pretty funny. I remember demoing filler uh, when I was um, when I was like, no, I was selling filler. Like I would show people filler at the Green Couch booth, and then uh, and sold a lot of copies of it. Super fun game. Um, and uh, and then I was like doing demos because my game was on Kickstarter. <laughs> so it's <was> just <laughs> kind of funny. Like, oh wow, we seem to be working with the same companies. So you know. Yeah, it's been uh, um, pretty great to know you through the years, and um, it's interesting to see our paths cross again. Right, right. Um, but yeah, so um, but no, I wanted to have you on and chat about what you've been up to lately. And uh, have you uh, have you played any? What what have you played in in your quarantine life? I know you've actually <laughs> been play testing online a good amount, like I have. Yeah. Um, so for uh, playing what I would say playing for fun instead of playing for the <laughs> right, right. <laughs> playing yes, for design. Yes. Um, we are our normal weekly game group of course has been thrown into um, craziness, but we have managed to keep things going um, in various formats. We've tried to stick as much as we can with um, physical games played remotely as opposed to, leaning too much on digital adaptations um partly because some of the people mm-hmm. i play with don't have the same technology available right Damn. And, yeah yeah a video call is easy and <laughs> right right most so, people have something that will do that so so we play a lot of games that can be done easily that way roll and rights work wonderfully that way they sure do yeah, and uh, so the best one of those recently, have you gotten to play um, Super Skin Skill pin- Pinball yet? Uh, Jeff Engelstein's no, new I've game. Heard, I've heard it's amazing. It is really good. It um, The only criticism I have from it for it is that it does take a bit long for, for a game of its weight. But mm-hmm. I got to say, it feels like playing a pinball machine. He's done That's what an, I've heard. Yeah, amazing job fitting all of the little bits in all the tilting and nudging and and how all of the different targets work and it just mm-hmm. multi ball. It all feels right. Oh, wow, that's really cool. And it is it is a pure roll and write game. Is that? It's absolutely. It's one of these um, zero player interaction games, uh, which I don't think is 
a bad thing. <laughs> it, Especially it, not for pinball, right? <laughs> exactly. Everyone's playing their own game, but using the same dice to do it. So there's one die roll. Everyone acts on their own board and continue. Yeah. Right. You can even um, play for free right now because the publisher has put out two of the four boards as print and place. So you can go find it on board. Oh, wow. And eat, eat yeah, I'm going to have to do that. And a number of players. It's pretty great. That does sound great. Yeah, I've I've heard only positive things about it, and I love pinball, so that's why. <laughs> and I actually, uh, my mom and I have played some games remotely uh, with her. You know, with the she lives by herself, and she loves pinball as well. And she really likes roll and write games. That's something that's very new to her, but it's just been something she's caught on to pretty quick. And so I'll have to, uh, yeah, I'll have to show her that one because that yeah, that sounds like a good time. So yeah, awesome, awesome. We I'm trying to remember. We I just I just bought. I'm addicted to roll and write tonight now. Um, as I mentioned on the show a few weeks ago, I'm I'm starting to do some publishing of roll and writes or random and writes uh, under the title of Random and Write Games uh, will be the name of the company or the DBA as it happens to be. Um, <laughs> so, uh, anyways, uh, the so we've been I've been buying tons of roll and writes just to play them and if you know just if like what do I love like what what are what are things that I feel like really work and what are things where I feel like um, it doesn't work as well. Right. Um, and so the newest one I got for 15 bucks off Amazon, I think was Metro X, uh, um, which is my game, right? Have you tried that before? I have not played it. I've heard, heard about it though. Yeah. So, so it's a little heavy, um, on the, on the start, right? Like, because the, if you look at the board, basically it's a bunch of subway lines as the name would, um, imply, and you're trying to, um, fill in the subway lines as you would any roll and write, where you're basically just trying to fill in uh, boxes with certain rules to make that easier or more difficult. Um, and when you first look at the board, it just looks really confusing. Um, it's very good graphic design, but it's just, I mean, it, you've looked at a subway map, right? Subway maps are hard <laughs> to read. This is no different um, than that. Um, so, so that took a little bit, but once my wife and I got rolling on it, it, it was, it was fun, right? Um, it uses just a card driven system, uh, to let you know what to fill in. Uh, it's very open-ended and, um, the, my only criticism of the game would be, cause it was fun and we will absolutely play it again. Um, was that it just, I feel like more so than other random and right stuff it's going to be the same game a lot of times, right? Um, because it's just the card driven system and your options are pretty straightforward, right? Like you fill in a, you fill in a number and then you fill in that many lines on the rail and you have to stop if you find a place that already has a number. Um, and you know, that's basically, that's, that's the thing, right? Um, and there's some other little powers and stuff you can use, but it's pretty straightforward. And so, like, I don't see that getting to the table a ton for that reason, right? Um, it has two boards, which is smart. It's got reversed boards, so you can play two different types. Um, but, yeah. So, I, what what have you heard about it? I'm curious if you've heard any of the positives or negatives. Um, really not much more than you've already said. It's kind of like, it's interesting that um, the uh, roll and write kind of genre has gotten so flooded recently and is getting so mature that now we almost have subgenres. So right. So now you're like what is what is this game competing against? Well, it's not competing against Quicks. It might be competing against Railroad Inc though. 
which I think is right, one of the right. best like route building of the. But then you've got the ones that are we've got so many polyomino based roll and write games and yeah, polyomino based ones have really, really, um, really been you know popular. I feel like I'm at the vice presidential debate. Uh, there's a fly flying around my head, even though I'm in a basement <laughs> office uh, and it's cold outside. For some reason, there is a fly in here, and I don't know where it came from. Um, but anyways, enough of that. No, so I, I agree. I, I would bet Railroad Inc. is better. I've only heard positive things about Railroad Inc. Uh, I'm sure it's better. Um, this is made for a game right audience though, which I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just a different audience. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that games, I, so the tactileness of filling in the way you fill in stuff, cause it's also an erase dry erase board, which was a nice upgrade. Um, that tactileness is better than I would say, um, like rolling America or mm-hmm. like R- rolling America is one that's just, you know, um, there's a lot of decisions because of the dice. So it's, it's a bit more randomized. And I, I think what my wife said with, um, with uh, Metro X was she said, this is the game that you will always win. She's like, it's not perfect information, but it is pure strategy. It is pure. Make the best choice with, we have the same choice and make the best strategic choice. And she said, you will always make the better strategic choice. You play more games. You think more strategically um, she's like, that doesn't make me not want to play it, but there's literally no good way to handicap it either. Right. Mm-hmm. To make it so that it would like, she would have a better chance at winning. Um, so that, that's a little bit of a bummer, right? Like with a game like rolling America, we're rolling dice. And based on my previous decisions and the way we roll the dice, like there's enough variables because you don't know what dice are coming. You don't know a, a lot of things. Um, so I, I think it just adds a lot more randomness into it where this being a more specific puzzle just makes it feel very solvable. Um, you know, it, it's uh, as Matt Loomis always used to say, there's oh, what did he, there's always a, um, I forgot the words he used. There's always an optimal move, right? There will always be an optimal move. Um, and as long as you always can look at the board and digest the information and know the optimal move, you should always win unless someone is better at that than you. Um, and that's, that's not what I really want to do for just a fun game with my wife. Right. Yeah. I feel like that, um, I wouldn't even call it a, a downside, but that quality of a game of it being very skill focused kind of goes, it is amplified by the fact that so many roll and writes are simultaneous. Everyone doing something with the same right resources, right. basically. Um, older roll and writes before the current f- phase. If you think back to things like Yahtzee, they don't have that at all because everyone is getting their own randomness to deal with. And right, right, it's really an innovation that now we're all dealing with the same thing because it keeps things moving, but it means that that is a skill difference can be in sharp relief as a result of that, I think. Right. And I I do think there are some ways to solve for that where you're sharing some resources, but not all of them. And I think that, you know, well, one of the things rolling America does is it introduces a wild die, right? So even though some dies have a specific color and you have to write in that color zone, the wild die I can put anywhere. And based on the decisions, there's like infinite possibilities as to where I may have, based on my previous decisions, need to put that wild die. And then there's the whole, what is the optimal move on that, right? And it becomes a lot fuzzier. And it's a lot harder for me to, um, because I guess like at the end of Metro X, if you blow someone out of the water, 
like they had the same chance as you did, right? Like they literally started at the same exact spot. At least things like um, a good example, I think, is Patchwork. Um, I can't remember what that version of Patchwork is called. Like Patch- Doodle, maybe? Patchwork Doodle. Yes, that's the one. Yeah. Like that, you all start with a different seven piece that is different shaped. Um, so in- immediately your board is different. Um, and then you can use your powers to alter shapes and things like that. So because of that, um, I, I think that it-, it leads to a lot more randomness, a lot more skill, but in a, in a more digestible way than the other. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you could actually play Metro X and end up with the exact same score. Like if you just copied the other person, you would have the exact same score. Right. Um, which is a problem. Like you could even do that accidentally, I guess, if you were like twins or something. I, I don't know, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's surprising how many games like that people diverge really quickly with the same, exactly the same tools. Right, right. And there are enough choices, I think, in that game and a lot of these games to make that happen. Um, but it is interesting that you could literally do the exact same thing and nothing would stop you from doing that. Other than the fact that it says do it simultaneously. Right. So, right. <laughs> so you're breaking that one rule, but. <laughs> Sorry, that was probably more talk about Metro X than I planned to have. <laughs> I, I, apparently, I had a lot more opinions about it than I realized when we first first sat down to start talking about this. <laughs> um, so we have, uh, I don't, I want to make sure we have lots of time to talk about this topic because I think it's really interesting. Um, so I'm going to let you kind of introduce the topic because I don't, I don't want to introduce it in a way that uh, makes it then harder to talk about because like I've steered us in the wrong path. So if that's okay with you, I would let you, uh, I'd like to let you just kind of introduce what we're going to chat about this evening. Yeah. So um, there was a, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, puzzle game design. Well, specifically um, uh, when I say puzzle game, I mean, um, puzzle solving game games like escape room games uh, as opposed mm-hmm. to as opposed to puzzly games <laughs> like the right, polyomino right, right. games we've been yeah. talking about um, right. and and this spawned from us talking about uh, uh, actually an upcoming game that is uh, is coming out this year that um, I designed that followed a strange path um, Every year for the past well, quite a few years now, I make a game to send out as our family Christmas card. And mm-hmm. that's awesome. I started doing this basically um, first just kind of on a whim, but then as a discipline, because I found that I was getting into the situation as a designer where I wasn't finishing things. I was starting lots of things, mm-hmm. getting distracted, yeah. getting getting frustrated, moving on, starting something new. And by setting myself this deadline, every year I will have a completed game that I will mail out to friends and family that forces me to finish something. And it also forces me to make it very cheap. <laughs> Because I'm <laughs> right, because you got to send it to a bunch of people. Exactly. So that inevitably means 18 card game, because that's, you know, the magic number of the sheet size for yep. so yep. many printers, Game Crafter in my case, usually. Um, so 
make an 18 card game come up with a new idea for an 18 card game now obviously there are tons of these out here but this year i thought well i'm enjoying escape room games and um i can talk a little bit more about my puzzle creation background later but um i thought I wonder if you could make an escape room game with just 18 cards. So I worked on that and came up with something that I was happy enough with. And when playtesting it, a publisher happened to see it, liked it and asked, Hey, could we publish? Could we, um, could we get this ready to go in time for the Christmas season? Um, you because like, it's, pay for my Christmas cards? Yes. It, exactly. <laughs> and it's a Christmas-themed game as well. So the upshot of that is from the time the publisher saw the game for the first time to getting it signed and getting it sent to the printer was less than a month. Wow. So <laughs> That might be a record. So um, that led to some interesting challenges and as we're talking about some puzzle game designs i just wanted to kind of have that background into what's been on my mind most recently because i've had to solve a lot of these problems very quickly (laughs) right right (laughs) so um yeah so to get started maybe uh so jason what are your what is your background in terms of playing escape room style games or you know which ones have you tried so I have not tried many escape room style games. I've tried some escape rooms, uh, which I'm a big fan of, just like mm-hmm. the actual physical escape rooms. I own a couple escape room games uh, and have not really had the chance to play them because there's just not a lot of um, it's not the type of thing that some of like that my wife would be interested in. Like she wouldn't like I mean, if you have an 18 card escape room game. Yeah, I think I can sell her that. Right. Which is good because I, I pre-ordered a copy. of it. <laughs> so, um, But that seems like something she might be more interested in. But, you know, a lot of these are like an escape room in a box. Right. And like, here's your clues and figure this out. And um, that's just not really up her alley. I've played some escape room video games like the classic like the room i think the room like mm-hmm. in the room two the yep. room three i've played all of those um and i really liked that tactileness of like there's a box and you're moving things on a box to open things to you know the idea that unlocking one thing unlocks now more mysteries right right um, and so that i i love that type of game and uh I, you know I, I i i so one of my favorite styles of games are engine builder games right and I think with my loose knowledge of escape room games, I feel a slight correlation between the two of like unlocking one thing, you know, is kind of like your engine of like moving forward in the game. That's probably a really bad analogy. Um, no, I, but I that's think what is intriguing to me. Yeah, I think um, it pro- they probably have very little to do with each other in terms of skill, but a lot to do with one another in terms of the part of your brain that enjoys that kind of thing. Right. No, that that's that that is I'm sure that's true, which means I should be playing more escape room <laughs> games. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe after the Kringle Caper, I'll be like, yes, I'm playing them all. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So um, just kind of the landscape of this. Uh, so you talked a little bit about physical escape rooms. I think actually, if my I, I believe the history is that the escape room um, digital games really were the first i don't know if they predated escape room physical escape rooms existing but certainly were popular first 
Oh yeah, yeah. Because they're, I mean, right? I mean, it's an experience anyone can have by themselves without needing a group, without having to go somewhere, right? Yeah, I mean, even those, it, you could probably draw a line from those back through things like Mist back in the nineties. Yes, yeah. To yep. all the way back to maybe even all the way back to like LucasArts point and click adventure games. It's really all right, right. The idea of a bunch of logic or even all the way back to infocom you know anything that <laughs> yeah it, it, where you've got a narrative and you've got puzzles to solve to to advance that narrative and i think then we've got so then we've got a physical escape rooms which are taking this this digital idea and saying you know what if you've actually got objects to manipulate which is you know very rewarding and then you got the line from that to the escape room game, which is basically the earliest ones were selling people on the idea of having the physical escape room experience without paying a lot of money and going to a physical space. Right, right. But what makes that different from a bunch of puzzles is the, I think the biggest things that make it different are the the um, narrative connecting them and the fact that it's a group doing them there is mm -hmm. yep that makes sense it's a fundamental difference in designing something for a group of people to do together as opposed to for one, one person to do it um and even more so if you're doing a physical uh escape room so i have done a lot of puzzle design for various events um uh, local conventions and icebreakers and work activities and things like that um but am newer at the escape room format which started with um uh well i we, uh, my uh, co-designer co uh, lauren wolsey and i um worked together on some portable escape rooms is what we call we would call this idea mm -hmm. yeah uh, where um instead of being an installation it's a big rubbermaid bin full of boxes that are locked <laughs> and so <laughs> that's awesome so we could set this up at a convention and tell people go and just have stuff on a table as opposed to needing a space to do this in right that's very and, cool and we had some grand plans to expand this into more of this idea, uh, learning from our experience. And then 2020 happened. So, um, right. <laughs> so that's kind of been put on hold. And so that's where I got the idea. Maybe I can do this on a smaller scale, um, a smaller physical scale uh, alone. So, um so that's what's led me to try to scale that down to just cards. So what's making this different from just a puzzle hunt is, again, the narrative, um, the fact that it's designed for groups. And because it's designed for groups, you need to have, especially in a physical one, a combination of puzzles and tasks where you have puzzles are things that have an aha moment where there's yeah that's a good point yeah something for the players to discover or um feel clever a task is something for players to do 
It might be um, a physical activity they need to perform. It might be some sort of um, spot the differences. It might be something arithmetic or word searchy or whatever. Something where the, the goal is obvious and it's just executing it. And the reason that's important is that in a group, people are going to want to do different things. And you can't rely on everyone having the same strengths. Right, right. I mean, that's I know that physically that's what makes escape rooms great is that different people figure out different parts because different people are good at different parts. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, the different lines of popular lines of these uh puzzle games i'll I'll use as the term even though that could mean something else but we know what we're talking about right right um (laughs) have dealt with that in different ways so some of them are very linear where everyone's working on the same thing at the same time and some of them are much more wide-ranging so the exit and unlock games for example are probably the most well-known and while not 100% linear, tend to be pretty much, this is the puzzle we're working on now, and we have to finish that before okay. we have the stuff to do the next one. Right, right. Uh, um, whereas um, the Dexcape line is one of the other fairly large ones, and that almost all of those, all of the ones that I can think of anyway, have an early moment in the game where the deck splits into multiple piles, and they're completely independent. So people, different people at the table can be working on different things at the same time. And there are pros and cons to both approaches. Um, so for my design, since I have 18 cards to work with, I couldn't find a good way of doing a whole lot of things in parallel because... <laughs> right, right. You've got 18 cards. Yeah, yeah I've only got that much. So um, I wanted to get at least a dozen puzzles in there. And that means that nearly every card needs to be a conclusion of something and if it splits up too much then it then the individual puzzles can't be interesting so there's a lot of um parallelism in giving information out but the puzzles themselves are pretty sequential that's a decision that that kind of mm-hmm. has been made in a lot of these um that's interesting to think about that like the idea, like the escape room deck where you've got literally the deck splitting and saying, okay, team A, you take this deck, team B, you take this deck and figure it out, right? Like that's, um, I didn't even think about that, even though that's what happens in a physical escape room, right? Like everybody kind of wanders around and some people do useful things. Other people, like the guy I was with one time, uh, picked up someone's purse and just dumped it out all over the floor um, because he didn't realize that it was someone's purse. He thought it was a prop. <laughs> um it didn't end well uh but we did make it out of the escape room with like seconds to spare but yeah, uh yeah, there's it was, the uh it was awkward so the magic yeah. the magic circle broke right there right <laughs> right right <laughs> so, oh what's all this stuff you guys have found something this girl's like that's my purse like what are you doing well that's interesting because um that brings to mind another aspect of of the design which is coming up with so you know you know the term the magic circle in terms of players buying in to the right. shared concept. And yep, you're kind of normally when you're doing a board game design, it's up to the players to discern, determine what that boundary is. Unless yeah, it's something sure. 
unless it's something highly um, role playing ish where you might be more explicit about that as the designer. Um, right, right. But it's you know, I, I Rob, uh, the former host of the show. You know, whenever he plays a cowboy game, he talks like he's in a western <laughs> movie. Right. Uh, drives me crazy, uh, but he does it every time because for him, that's part of the experience, right? Yeah. So, so but yeah, it's to, different for everyone. You have to be way more explicit than that when you're designing a puzzle game like this. So in a physical escape room, that's why they have the whole rundown of, you know, this is what the locks look like and don't try to pry open the vent and <laughs> <All> uh, <right. laughs> anything in this box is not part of the game. That's where you're going to put your purse, um, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> right. um, and you have to do the same thing with the board game equivalent. Um, you have to say, Hey, um, you don't don't look on the internet for answers you have to if you know you have to decide what does the realm of this game extend into um beyond the cards so both exit and unlock are have try have done every variation of breaking that rule where you think that all the things are contained on these cards, but in fact, you need some other element that was packaged along, or you need some website, ah. or you need to call a phone number, or you need to... Right. Um, which is either the best or the worst moment of each of those games. It's the best if you figure <laughs> it out, and it's the worst if you don't. Because... Right. It's fundamentally unfair because they have established the boundaries and now they're breaking them. Um, but also another boundary is knowledge. So in a physical escape room, one of kind of the golden rules of design is don't require any information of the players that isn't provided in the room. Don't make them answer yeah, trivia questions sense. because that's not what they're in there for. Um, and some of the puzzle games, you know, take that ethos. You know, you don't you don't generally need anything to play an exit or unlock that you wouldn't need else otherwise. Other ones, though, especially like puzzle books like Journal 29, um, are much more like a puzzle hunt where you assume that people could look on the Internet for an answer. They just need to know right. what to look right. for. So it's just important to know what your boundaries are. So. Yeah. yeah, it makes total sense. Yeah, so back to the example of the one that I've been working on. Um, I started with one assumption, which was that my friends and family are going to be playing this game, and I could make puzzles that relied on any information that I could expect them to know, which is no longer the case. So I had to redesign uh -huh. uh, two or three puzzles because... You know, they really Publisher shouldn't got you on that one. They really shouldn't rely on Michigan geography like one of the puzzles originally did. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, but just understanding what that um, what that boundary is, is very important, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of what the expectations are of the players. Right. I mean, in just in general, like, are they expecting logic puzzles? Are they expecting physical right pattern puzzles and that sort of thing and I, I do you have you worked with all of those different or do you stick with a very specific type of puzzle have you worked with a lot of different ones yeah i mean i like 
as a puzzle solver, I like a very wide variety of puzzles. I um I love wordplay. There's probably quite a bit more wordplay in my game than a lot of the other puzzle games, which is basically going to make it impossible to translate. Um as a side effect of that. <laughs> right. Uh, but uh um but then also I think it's I think it's the most satisfying when you have a healthy mix of spatial puzzles and logic puzzles and word puzzles just kind of right again back to the group of people solving you're not making it for one person who likes one kind of thing you want different people to have different strengths that's Um, a good point that's a very good point um and then you have to play test the thing which is the other thing that has been very interesting in this process. And I think maybe so, one of the things you want to talk about the most. Yeah. I was really interested in that idea. So I, with like, with your current game, like that is a one shot game, you play it and you've solved it. And then you could play it with someone else, but like you would know the answer. It would be basically like, Hey, would you like to try and solve this? Is that correct? That's exactly right. Yeah. So there are okay. in this, in this vein, basically all of, the games have that quality to them that you can't unless there's a significantly branching storyline where you might not have seen all the puzzles but even then you probably will have seen enough of them right. but it's not satisfying that'd be more like what like house of danger i think does that yeah yeah the choose your own adventure um yeah it's more of a choose your own adventure style puzzle rather or than, the you know, um yeah. the adventure game series from cosmos is a little bit like that Good too point. yep um, but like an exit or an unlock, you're not going to play again. Um, if it's an unlock, you haven't destroyed anything so you can give it on. And that's the, that's the model that I've followed with exit. They're probably going to cut things and fold things and which lets you have right. a different kind of set, a different style of puzzle, but it means that you can't resell it. So, um, that makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, so playtesting that means um effectively speaking i can't use the same play tester twice yeah so yes along the play testing lines which is that's really interesting to me because there are absolutely times where like you want to be able to use the same play testers i mean that is um a kind of at least for me and maybe i i don't know if i don't want to speak for you but like for me i have a core group of people whom i trust to try stuff and i will have them try and really design and then I may go back to them six months later and have them try a much later design because their new feedback is very, very helpful um, because they've they've seen it before and they're seeing it now. And you don't really have that option, which is that yeah. seems difficult to me. So in our um, so our local uh, game design group, uh, uh, which is called Grubs, Grand Rapids Unpublished Board Game Society, uh, we meet every week now. Um, on zoom on on discord and um tabletop simulator and work through each other's stuff and there are enough people there so i designed my game to be optimally played by two or three people it plays with more or less Mm -hmm. but i tried to keep most of my play tests to two people just so i wouldn't use up testers (laughs) right that makes total sense yes so then i would i would just kind of i figured it was like my human budget so i had this group of people and I, I knew what their personalities were like. I knew the kinds of things they would like they would like and not like and the kinds of feedback they would give me. And I tried to pace out the testing um, with them 
interspersed with testing with with people I didn't know. Um, okay, that makes total sense. Yeah, I uh, have been. I made good use of the um, uh, a couple of the other online playtesting groups that are are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Rem- remote playtesting, um, which is the one that uh, is run by um, uh, Gil Hova and Catherine Stipple and a yes. couple others. Yes, um, yeah. that uh, has been a was a great source to find people who. I wouldn't normally wouldn't normally be in my playtesting circles that I could run these by. Right, right. But with my group, then the interesting thing is, a person can be a tester for me once, and then they're a co-designer. Um, because the second time they te- they're they're testing, they know all the answers, so they can only give me the perspective of them imagining not knowing the answer and telling me whether right, right. the changes seem like a good idea to them, and then but I can't evaluate that (laughs) right i mean i guess other than if they're like i don't like this one puzzle because of x and then Mm -hmm. you say okay here's a new puzzle for this step yes what do you think of this puzzle the other thing that's interesting is a lot of times you know play testers who really enjoy a game turn into customers (laughs) (laughs) you kind of burn that bridge uh when you're doing that that is true yeah and that must be the case for all of these um the uh yeah the the um interesting thing is that i've some of the play testers that i've had are people who design this kind of game and we have become each other's customers now um because we like each other's stuff so that's 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 also been an been an avenue but the um yeah that you you really have to have a core set of of testers who can both experience something for the first time and then pivot and say okay now i've seen this before but i can it's kind of like before i even make for a regular board game before i even make the first physical prototype i have made and discarded a dozen prototypes in my head in the shower um right yes so you you have you you build that mindset where you are you are playing both sides when you're solo testing something it's kind of the same with a puzzle game you have to you build the mindset where well what if i didn't know this what what hints would be useful what um would this feel and and the answer is you're going to make it too hard because you know the answer and you think it's easier than it is um yeah so that's that is really, really difficult um, to get your head around. Um, I, I would have to guess as a puzzle designer, that's one of the, like, so as in, when you're just talking about general game design, right? Theoretically, the more experience you have, the easier things should get, right? Because you're, you're gaining more knowledge, you're learning more tricks of the trade. And with puzzles, that's probably the case, but also you're getting better at solving puzzles, which means you have to really check yourself right when you're making something to make sure it's not too complex right because it doesn't feel as complex i mean it's i guess it's kind of the same as like when you start playing games you're playing say lighter games and then as you kind of graduate into heavier games if that's what you enjoy what ends up happening is now you're like oh this heavier game's not that heavy and then you show it to a new player and they're like whoa this is a big game like i don't understand it i mean is that is that like a real issue you can run into as a puzzle designer or no it it totally is um i i find that a good 
good way to one of my favorite games of all time is Zendo by Corey Heath. Um, it's just one of the Looney uh, Pyramids games or used to be anyway, mm-hmm. and yeah. they've redesigned the pieces. But that is a really great game for recalibrating difficulty in your brain because it is it gives you exactly this challenge as the um master for the round you have to come up with a rule that the other players are going to need to solve and new players will always make rules that are way too hard and right right you learn that there is a big difference between how difficult something is when you know the answer already and how different how difficult it is when you have nowhere to start from and so my cheat on this is to focus on the hint system i would much rather have a puzzle that's a little bit too hard and have a robust and graduated hint system where people can make the puzzle as hard as they need it to be to feel satisfied that's fair yeah um how how, how do you handle that in games like how do you handle like a hint system well um in a lot of the games that I have run, I have been physically there, which means that I am the hint system. Um, in which right. case, you can do it on the fly and you can get it exactly right. And I love doing that. I love um, being kind of a, a GM um, it, for, the, for those kinds of situations. Um, but... If you look at the ways that the different escape room series or puzzle series have handled this, I think the biggest differentiator for me between ones I love and ones I hate is the hint system. Um, When if they that's fair, yeah. If they give me a way to get just enough of a hint um, to progress without making me go through a bunch of things I already know. And without giving me the answer, I feel good. Um, And Mm -hmm. so for this game, actually, what I did was I tried to mimic the old um, Infocom hint system, which is that instead of saying, here is hint number one for puzzle number three, here is hint number two, here is hint number three, that can get the job done, but it's better to say... um, here's a question I need to have answered. What do I do with the blue square? What does the, you know, what, le- what order do I put these letters in? You know, have questions that, so someone can get a targeted answer for a specific thing that's bugging them and move on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, I've, by no means have I, do I think I have completely cracked this nut, but um I think it feels pretty good to me, but again, I don't know because I can never play my own game. Right. Yeah, that is. And that's, that is a distinct problem that is not the case in any general board game, right? Is that you literally can't play your own game even once because you've know all the answers. There's one exception and it's another thing that I've done in that's trivia games. Um, Anything where you have, and that's kind of a, I mean, that's not a puzzle game, but you can tell that they're siblings in some way. Like you can't. Yeah, absolutely. If you design wits and wagers and you came up with all of the, uh, 
I'm sure he didn't come up with all of all of the questions himself. But if you come up with the content, you can't play the game. So actually, um, yeah. So this is just that to a higher degree. Very interesting. Any other specific notes you want to give about yeah. puzzle design and playtesting? I think um, I think it's may, probably useful for anyone who is listening to this who wants to get into this kind of design. Um, there are a few resources I would recommend. Um, one is uh, there's a book called Puzzlecraft. Uh, Mike Selinker and Thomas Snyder are the authors. Um, and it is more generally writing pencil and paper puzzles. That's kind of the focus of it, the kinds of things you'd find in games magazine. Um, but it is, it is sort of a, it's, it's almost encyclopedic. There are so many different kinds of puzzles and it walks through how each one is constructed. Interesting. And it has a very small part on escape rooms, but actually that's not even the most useful part. It just, just being able to see the variety of things that are out there and how they're put together is, is very useful. And, um, I'd recommend, uh, there's podcast called escape this podcast where they do, um, a, uh, uh, role-playing basically it's a role-playing game, but it's not, but it's an escape room. So every, so every episode that's awesome. they have, uh, they have someone who essentially narrates the experience of a, of an escape room and they will solve this puzzle. Uh, the, the people who are, who are in the escape room will just say what they're doing and they will be, and the, the GM will tell them what happens. And, and they have some very interesting puzzles in there and, and do a lot of, they alternate between that experience and then just dissecting that experience and talking about what worked and what didn't mm -hmm. and why. Um, that's an excellent resource as well. That does sound cool. Also, just a really good name for a podcast. <laughs> and I've been having a lot of fun also, um, and it has also helped me in the, along this avenue. There is a um, system of games called Parsley, P-A-R-S-E-L-Y, that um, mm -hmm. some people may have played these at conventions. Uh, and But the idea is that they are old in the style of old text adventure games, one person plays the computer awesome. and everyone else gives commands to the parser, like go north or eat apple or slay cobalt uh -huh. or whatever. Yeah. And then they're told what happens. And th th those are offered in books and have some inventive puzzles in them and really can inspire you to what kind of narrative tricks you can pull to make to hang puzzles together because that's the other aspect is not just the individual ones but how how do they flow together as a larger group right right obviously that's very important if you want the game to have that sort of flow and continuity and immersion yep. other than like you said being just a bunch of unrelated puzzles <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> excellent excellent well that was that was something awesome that was that was a really fun topic uh it's it it touches on a lot of things that as a designer, I've certainly not got to experience, which I love hearing about other people's experience around design and, uh, and games, the types of games that I haven't designed uh, at all and haven't played that much. So, yeah. So thanks for 
for chatting about that. Absolutely. Now you're going to tell us about a game that you're working on that is not the Kringle Caper, which we've just been talking about. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So what do you what do you got for us? What are you going to pitch tonight? All right. So I've got uh, a game that I am pretty proud of and yet um, is also one of the most challenging ones to solve problem to solve the uh, uh, the design problems. It's called a drunken sailor. It is a right and right game. So, um, Did you say a right and right, game? right, right and right game. Yeah. So normally you need a, some random element, right, to do your to roll and right game. So you're rolling dice or you're flipping cards. So in this right, game, right. you are um, each captains of a sailing vessel. You're going to sail the seas and find. Uh, plunder and then you're going to bring it back to port and sell it and make loads of money and fame straightforward but the uh, sailing portion uses the system from doodle quest and looney quest where you are um, in front of you you have a transparency and in the middle of the table in the, between all the players is the sea map and you chart your course in front of you um, but you've been into the grog, so uh, you can't overlay your transparency right on the map and draw. You have to do it in front of you while looking at the map and trying to estimate where things are, and things will go wrong. Awesome. Yeah, so, yeah I bet they do. <laughs> so you, all the players do this simultaneously and then um, put their transparency over the map in the middle and see what uh, resources they have gathered. And then there's a second phase where um, the other side of the board is a is the port, and there are a bunch of places in port where you can go to trade goods. And this is mm-hmm. then a simultaneous worker placement game. So everyone decides where their crew members are going to go, which things they're going to do, and when everyone has decided and re- written that on their transparency. Everyone overlays their transparencies on top of each other on the board in the middle. And there, then you can suddenly see how many people went to each place. And then some supply and demand kicks in. So ah, if everyone right. went to the same place, then the vendor h- hikes up the price because they know it's in demand. Right. Yeah. But if you go alone, then you can get things for cheap. So that's the concept. Um, and... I've had a lot of positive feedback from testers on this, but mm-hmm. um, there are a few aspects I struggle with. The biggest being getting the balance right between the silliness of that first phase and the more serious um, uh, Vicini effect of the second one of trying to get in your in your neighbor's head. They're not really at odds, but it's hard to get that balance right, right between the two. Right. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, because the first part does feel very silly. But yeah. So is that is that just the general feedback you're getting of like, hey, this feels like a silly game and a weighty game in the same game? Yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of that. Um, the In terms of p- pitching it to publishers, the biggest thing is finding publishers that don't, um, that, that feel that they can just physically produce such a thing um right right certainly some challenges there yeah i mean it's not these aren't 
revolutionary ideas, but they're also not common. So a lot of publishers will right. never have dealt with these materials or or know how to do them affordably. Um, and it, and um, then the other big challenge that that I've been wrestling with is one of randomization. Um, in this game, I've got a bunch of maps that go from easy to hard, and I want over the course of a game, I want you to progress from easy to hard, but I don't want to exhaust all of the maps every time. So I want to randomize, uh, randomize, right. but keep it in a, an ascending sequence sort of. And so far I don't have any cards or dice, so I don't have anything that's naturally a randomizer. I would have to add something. Right. Right. Yeah, that is in because obviously you have a limited number of maps that you can have mm -hmm. just based on the fact that, you know, it's a game in a box. Right. There's only so many are going to fit. So, so they're right. probably going to be something on the on the scale of 15 to 20 um letter-sized uh pieces of cardstock and um of which we'll use about five in a game. Right. That seems like a great proportion for, for randomizing it once you figure out how to do that. How, right? how is it actually randomized? Exactly. Yeah. Thought about, you know, that this would make for the, the latest craze. It would make for a great example of one of these spiral bound um, book as a board um, ideas. Mm -hmm. um, except the, again, again, randomizing that. How, how do you go to a random page in a book? That's, Easier said than done. That dice in, and then you roll two dice, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, I mean, the uh, the simplest thing would if you had fifteen to twenty of them, right? You give two to each player of the same level, right? So, like, hey, yep. Jason, you get two level ones or whatever easiness rating ones, and and you pass those all around, and then everyone picks one of those choices, mm -hmm. and then you stack those up, and there's there's your mostly randomness right i mean that's um yeah it's kind of that uh that sidestepping it that games do when they say randomly choose a start player and don't say how to randomize that people will figure it out i know right yeah i like when they just say choose a start player yeah or decide who goes first rather than randomly decide because <laughs> most of the time in games people are like you want to go first yeah sure you know like i usually judge that based on how many new people are playing the game? If one new person is playing the game, I will almost always just set it up so they go last. So they can sure. watch two or three people go before they have to go and feel insecure about their moves, right? Mm -hmm. oh, okay, so those people did that. Maybe I'll try that. All right. <laughs> yeah, so so maybe punting and just saying the players will figure it out might be enough. It's just uh, felt a bit like a cheat to me. Yeah, yeah. I think at least the structure of... Each player picks, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. player one picks level one, two, three, four. But still, yes, it still feels like punting, right? Because it still feels fiddly to say like, hey, y'all figure it out, right? <laughs> um, plus, there's that whole idea of like, um, like, then like being upset with the player, right? Like, oh, the new player picked this awful map. Everybody hates <laughs> this map. Why'd you pick this map, right? Um, that's not fun, right? Yeah. Here's what you do. Here's this is it. This is the solution for you. So you have workers, right? Mm -hmm. So on the bottom of the workers, they each get a unique number. Okay. okay. 
And then at the beginning of the game, you sort them up and you pick five workers and then you flip those numbers over. And that is your, that's your randomization system. And if you wanted, assuming that like there's different color workers for different players, you just make sure that there's that number of level of maps, right? And then you, so if there's, I don't know how many workers for each player are there. Well, yeah, depending on the, I've, I've had some iterations with, um, with physical workers where they could be between, I don't know, three and seven. Um, actually in the most, most more recent designs, I don't actually have physical workers at the moment. Um, it's okay. just drawing. It's, it's more writing on the right and right, but, uh, but that there'd be easy to have some tokens. So yeah. Yeah. Tokens. There's, so there's, there's an idea. Tokens right? are mean, cheap. Had tokens. Yeah, I mean that would be a and it'd be dual use, right? Like, yeah. oh, it's got the randomization number on the bottom, and know, that also feels for this other thing. I'm not yeah. saying it because I just thought of it. It feels <laughs> kind of clever. Like, yeah. like if I'm a player and I see that, I'm like, oh, that's clever. Like they didn't have to put more stuff in there. Yeah, because it would also be annoying if you put in tokens that were just for that. Like that feels like I paid for that, and like you know, I only use them at the very beginning of the game, and maybe that's annoying to me. <laughs> Could have saved me two dollars on this game. That's right. <laughs> for these tokens. Yeah. Well, that yeah. So, drunken sailor, it's called. Yeah, that's the working t- working title that's, because you know it makes sense. Yes, things are not going to go as planned. I, I would agree with that. It sounds like <laughs> it, especially anytime I've seen one of those games where you have to try and draw without actually being able to, you know, draw correctly. That is always, oh, yeah, that's always really difficult. The biggest challenge lately has been getting this working in tabletop simulator, which I have successfully done. And I'm pretty, pretty proud of that. Really? <laughs> wow. Wow. And in, yeah. in tabletop simulator trying to do anything, it automatically looks like you're drunk. So yeah, so I mean that's bonus there. <laughs> Absolutely. Excellent. Well, I would love to try that sometime in, in Tabletop Simulator then. That would be that would be a lot of fun. Cool. So, all right. Well, um thank you for coming on the show. This was a lot of fun. Uh other than the Kringle Caper, uh which I think at grandgamersguild.com you yes, can get it's that. Available for pre-order now and it'll be shipping be- by Christmas for a stocking stubber. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I think that was that was smart. Uh, it was a smart move uh, in a very good time crunch <laughs> and it paid for your Christmas cards and hopefully and then some. So that's that's a bonus. Right. Um, yeah. So uh, so check that out. What is the cost? It was not expensive. Whatever I, it was. Uh, I have to look it up. I think it's twelve dollars. Yeah, it was twelve. Yes, it was twelve bucks in free shipping, which is that's a stellar deal for a stocking stuffer, uh, you know, escape room game. I love that. And uh, the art looks fun, so from what I've seen of it. So obviously you don't show too much of the game because right. it's an escape room game. Exactly. So yeah, you know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, is there anything besides that you want to plug or give a shout out to since you're here? Yeah, well, I mean, you already mentioned my other uh, games that are on shelves right now are Stroop and Filler, and um, I am looking forward to a design i'm working on um that will also be from grand gamers guild that um uh is still a work in progress but uh will be a tie-in to the great game the artemis project um that's going Fantastic to be a, game. Yeah, that's awesome a thematic successor to that game um in the same same universe so looking forward to that um 
Uh, hopefully we'll have some news in about a year's time about that. Right. Yes. Cause it's, it's a game and you know, That's, so it's always, it's always a long time unless it's, unless it's an escape room you designed, uh, that needs to be out <laughs> for Christmas. And then folks, you can get things to turn around real quick. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And, uh, um, that's rare. <laughs> yep. And if you're in the, uh, if you're listening in the, um, in the Michigan area, uh, and you're, and you're interested in joining us, um, with the uh, Grand Rapids designers, um, every Thursday evening, you can find us and we'll, we're happy to take all comers. Um, we bias ourselves towards this geography, but we're not too strictly limited. So, um, you can find us at, uh, uh grubs.link is the website for that. Awesome. And if you can, if you can find Grand Rapids on your hand, they'll probably let you in. That's right. Just seems like a good rule. <laughs> it's like a Facebook group. You're like, submit a photo of your hand pointing to Grand Rapids. <laughs> and people are like, I don't understand that. You're like, then you can't be in. Sorry. <laughs> yep. Perfect. Well, thanks again, Jonathan. This was a great time uh, to have you here. Um, so yeah, builders, thank you for listening today. You can, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us at buildingthegamepodcast.com. Um, you can find us, uh, you can call us at 770-TELL-BTG. You can find us on the Twitter at, at podcastbtg, at J.A. Slingerland. And Jonathan, you are at something with Uncle and Bob. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> at Uncle John Bob is my Twitter that's handle. That's what it was. I almost said that exact thing, but I thought, I'm not sure. You can follow me if you don't care about people actually tweeting ever. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? A lot of people follow the podcast, and I rarely tweet with that. I mostly just mention it in tweets from my own personal account. Uh, so, yeah. So, you know, people people will follow it. So follow at Uncle John Bob. Check it out. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so thank you all for listening. And until next time, good night. Good night. Building the game with Jason and friends. With Jason and friends. Building the game. Building the game with Jason and friends. With Jason and friends. Dial 770 Hotel BTG. Please don't use the email. <laughs>